0: Well, the passage we're going to look at today is a passage that actually trains us on how to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And uh, I would ask you to turn there with me, 1 Samuel chapter, I mean 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we'll read the whole chapter. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now, Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our glory to study it, to internalize it, and uh, to grow in our love, our worship, our adoration, our service to you. And we pray that by your spirit, you would quicken this word to our hearts, that it might not simply be uh, information uh, dumped into our heads, but, Father, it would be transformational. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth, and we love it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, today we come to my second favorite passage in all of First and Second Samuel. My favorite one is David and Goliath. Uh, but this is a passage where I think David is at his most mature and I believe at his uh, best. And, and frankly, it's a passage that has frequently uh, moved me to tears uh, for a number of different reasons. But here was a man who had so internalized God's grace that he has become an illustration of God's grace for commentaries for hundreds of years. I mean, just think about that. That's a remarkable thing. Uh, For somebody to say, you want to see what God's grace looks like? Look at that man. He is an illustration of God's grace. And uh, so uh, I don't think technically this is a type or a parable But David exemplifies the promise of Jesus that if we drink of him, out of our innermost being will flow rivers of living waters. In other words, we cannot drink of Jesus without becoming channels of blessing in the lives of others. And the more deeply we drink of Jesus, the more we're going to become a picture of his salvation. And so I think it's in that sense that uh, this story is a picture of God's sovereign grace. It's not a parable where we can glory in what God's done for us and ignore the the mandate that we do as David did. It's not a type of our salvation, although people disagree with me on that, uh, and I may be wrong, but I don't see anywhere in the scripture where it's called a a type. Uh, I think it's stronger than a type. David exemplifies God's salvation in his life so much that when we see his expression of heart, we see really the heart of God. And so even though I'm going to be making applications from this as if it were a type, I don't want us to miss the, the lesson that this is a real historical man that we can imitate who is a picture of God's grace and salvation because he has so internalized it, so tasted of it. Now the first thing that we see in verse 1 is that David's kindness to Mephibosheth was based on his covenant faithfulness to Jonathan. It was because of a covenant. Now, David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The Hebrew word for kindness in both verse 1 and verse 3 is the Hebrew word chesed. It's very difficult to translate into uh, English, but it has these nuances uh, of meaning. Steadfast loyalty, Steadfast faithfulness, steadfast love, steadfast kindness or mercy. And it flows from some kind of a commitment. Uh, It's a word of the covenant. Jenny Westerman said, according to Gluwak, chesed does not refer to a spontaneous, ultimately unmotivated kindness, but to a mode of behavior that arises from a relationship defined by rights and obligations, such as husband-wife, parent-child, prince-subjects. When chesed is attributed to God, it concerns the realization of the promises inherent in the covenant. And so it's a word of commitment that flows from the covenant, and it's manifested as steadfast love, steadfast faithfulness, mercy, kindness. Those, Those things are all wrapped up in a package. Now, in 1 Samuel 20, David did make a covenant with Jonathan that... Uh, he would continue to show chesed to Jonathan and to his descendants even after all of David's enemies were cut off. Now, in the last two chapters, we've had this transition. All of David's enemies have been cut off, and most pagan kings would have taken this opportunity to further consolidate their power by killing off any potential competitors to the throne. See, uh, any of Saul's descendants, because of the north's loyalty to Saul, any of his descendants could have easily uh, become a threat uh, to David. But David does not think uh, like a pagans. He had experienced God's chesed so richly and so undeservedly that the first response of his heart is I want to show chesed uh, to those who are out there, who really didn't deserve it. Uh, I want to show it for Jonathan's sake. This mercy did not flow from knowing Mephibosheth. It did not flow from thinking he was a swell guy. It was uh, anything good that was in Mephibosheth. It flowed from faithfulness to his covenant. And the same is true of our salvation. God did not choose us because of any conditions that he saw in us. Okay? He chose us Because in eternity past, he had entered into an eternal covenant. We call it the covenant of redemption. Before the world was even made, he entered into a covenant with his son promising to redeem a people for his glory. And um, God's commitment to that covenant with his son guarantees his chesed to us. In fact, if you look at verse 3, you'll see that David explicitly ties his own chesed in with God's chesed. It says... Uh, Verse 3, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God, the chesed of God? And so that's why I say it's a picture of God's uh, chesed. Now back in verse 1, I want you to notice that this chesed was not just for the sake of the covenant, it was for the sake of Jonathan. David and Jonathan had a love for each other that according to Uh, 2 Samuel 1, verse 26, transcended the love that a husband has to his wife. It was far greater. That's what the text says. (laughs) And only God's grace could produce such a deep-seated love for an individual. And, of course, that's exactly the nature of God's hesed for us. It was founded and it was strong because of His love for His Son. Uh, God does not value us because we are so special We are special to God because of His Son. In fact, uh, one of the things that I uh, encourage people to do in Ephesians chapter 1 is to either underline or circle every time that the word in occurs because it just opens up the passage uh, like crazy. Uh, It occurs over and over again in Christ. It says, We are chosen in Christ. We are blessed in Christ. We are loved in Christ. We are accepted in the beloved. We have redemption in Jesus, forgiveness of sins in Jesus. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus, etc., etc., etc. You just read through Ephesians 1, it's remarkable. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus. Our our Lord. Every kindness that God has chosen to pour out into our lives, he has poured out precisely because of Jesus, because of his commitment to Jesus. And David has been so touched with God's kindness that he exemplifies a sight unseen kindness to Mephibosheth because of Jonathan. Now a third characteristic that we see in David's chesed towards Mephibosheth was that it was initiated by David and not by Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth hadn't made any move toward David. In fact, he was running as far away as he could. He was way over the river, way over in Lodabar, where almost nobody went, off in the wilderness. He did not make any overtures to David. It was an act of David's will alone that brought such kindness to this young man. And in the same way... Ephesians 1 verse 5 says that we were predestined to glory according to the good pleasure of God's will. Our will had nothing whatsoever to do with it. John 1.13 says we were born not according to the will of man nor according to the, flesh, or the will of the flesh, but of God. Uh, Romans 3 says our will has nothing to do with salvation for there is none who seeks after God, verse 11 says. Instead Romans 9 tells us God saves saves whom He wills, and whom He wills, He hardens. You cannot read Romans 9 and believe that God owes anyone salvation. He didn't owe anyone salvation, not at all. And it's equally clear that no man initiates the steps towards their own salvation. Here's what Romans 9 says. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion... So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And I don't think there's any story in the Bible that illustrates better the sovereign grace of God than the story of Mephibosheth. Salvation is sovereign or it's not free. Salvation is 100% of God. Uh, It is not uh, founded upon man. That's why Jonah, the book of Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord. Now, the fourth feature of David's kindness to Mephibosheth is that it was gracious. Now, the word gracious means to have undeserved goodwill towards a person. Undeserved, okay? It's very easy to have goodwill towards somebody who's a very close friend of yours. But to be as gracious, as generous as uh, David was to a person that he did not even know really transcends what we normally speak of as human graciousness. And it may be why verse 3 speaks of the kindness of God. It's almost as if the Spirit of God is moving David to do this. Like David is so tasted of God's chesed that his heart is stirred up. It's almost like he is, he, he is driven by the Spirit of God to give the same kind of chesed to someone else, lavish goodwill. And when you see the extent of David's graciousness, you see it goes way beyond the kind of uh, generosity that most kings uh, would give. He gave all of Saul's estate's. Now think about that for a bit. Because of Saul's grasping nature, Saul had far vaster estates than David did. David's giving away far more than he's going to retain for himself. I mean, it's really amazing. Now we've already seen uh, a couple chapters ago that David's generosity was enormous. He'd conquered all these nations, got all of this wealth. He gives it to God. Uh, $249 billion worth of gold and silver and all kinds of other riches that he gave to the Lord. And so we see he's got this generous kind of a heart. But to give away all of Saul's estates to a man that he had never met before was gracious indeed. And based on what most commentators believe uh, of where Mephibosheth was living, they say that he was brought from poverty to being as rich as a king. And so David was gracious. And the graciousness of God to us is unbelievable. Unbelievable. I love the way that John 14 words it. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I love that word mansions because it you know, speaks of the richness of God's grace to us. And uh, realizing his disciples are going to have a hard time grasping God's generosity, he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Ephesians 1, uh, 18 speaks of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 3, 8 speaks of the unsearchable riches of God. <coughs> now, that word unsearchable in the Greek literally means you can't calculate it. You can't mark it out because there's so much riches, you, you can't count all of the riches that God has given to you. And the riches cover every aspect of life. God is, quote, rich in mercy, Ephesians 2.4, and speaks of the riches of His grace and His kindness, Ephesians 2.7. And he stored up for us riches of the glory of His inheritance, Ephesians 1.18. And even in this life, He promises to provide for all of our needs according to His riches in glory, uh, Philippians 4.19. He's given us so, so much. And after Paul has talked about that for some time in, in the, the book of Romans, it's no wonder to me that he breaks out in a doxology saying, Oh, the depth of the riches. Both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, on the other hand, it ought to crush our hearts when Romans two verse four complains that we despise. The riches of his goodness. We despise those riches when we do not respond as Mephibosheth did. We despise those riches if we think God owes us. We despise those riches when we grumble and complain. It would be sort of like Mephibosheth grumbling about burnt toast on Wednesday morning when he's for weeks had fabulous food, you know? Um, we despise those riches when we fail to be blown away as Mephibosheth was. But what makes this even more astonishing is that David was prepared to give all of this to an enemy. Now, he didn't even know if any of Jonathan's sons are still alive. For the sake of Jonathan, he's willing to show Hesed to any survivor of Saul's house. Look at the way it's worded again in verse 1. Now, David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Who is he willing to show kindness to? It was to a member of Saul's household, the same Saul who had tried to hunt him to death, the same Saul who had confiscated all of his estates, all of his family's estates, the same Saul who had done nothing but persecute him. And yet he repeats the same words in verse 3 to Ziba, the steward of, of, of Saul's properties. Then king, the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Uh, even though Mephibosheth is a son of, uh, of, uh, of Jonathan, uh, David's dear friend, uh, he was carried away at the age of five, according to chapter 4, verse 4. And when you read it, they realized the nurse carried him away because she feared David. Why would she fear David? Because she assumes that David is going to kill off all of his competitors just like Saul. Saul had been in the practice of killing off his competitors. So even though Mephibosheth ends up being the son of a friend, from a human perspective, he was an enemy. He was a threat to David's kingdom. But I think the point is especially sharp when you realize David made this offer before he knew there were any descendants of Jonathan. He was willing to show chesed to a member of the household of Saul. And so to me, it's no wonder. It's called the chesed of God in verse 3. What does Scripture say we deserved before God brought us into the covenant? Ephesians 2.3 says, We were by nature children of wrath just as the others. God did not choose us because we had a different nature than the children of wrath. He says, no, you were children of wrath by nature just like the others. Now, Paul says that Christ died for us while we were still enemies. And the more you meditate upon that fact the more astonishing your salvation will appear in your mind and the more you're going to be just like Mephibosheth and you're going to be able to identify when he says, what is your servant that you would look upon such a dead dog as I? I mean, that's going to be the response of your heart. And that's what constantly gets me about that story. Uh, I'm glad to even be a servant of God and yet I realize spiritually I'm worse than a dead dog. I was an enemy of God. Of God, and yet He elevated me to be a Son. He has seated me with Christ in the heavenlies. That is what our salvation is all about. We deserve to be treated like all the other vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. But God, because of His eternal covenant with His Son, provided salvation, and here's what He says that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory. Can you see why this is one of my favorite stories? (laughs) I just love it. The sixth thing that I see about David's chesed was that it was given to a person who was absolutely helpless. Over and over, it's emphasized, he's lame in both his feet. He doesn't even have one foot, you know, that he can kind of hobble on. He's lame in both his feet. He couldn't do anything to help uh, without the help of others. So David did not give all of his property to Mephibosheth because he was making an alliance with some other king or hoping he could get something out of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth has no power. He has no giftings. He has no abilities. He has nothing that he could give to David except for his gratitude. And it's so important that we not insult God's chesed to us with the self-esteem movement's heretical presuppositions. One preacher said, You are worth so much that Jesus died for you. And I say nonsense. Nonsense. That's backwards thinking. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is defiled, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted menstrual rag. That's the literal Hebrew. Okay? Outside of Christ, God describes us as being offensive in His sight. He didn't die for us because we're worth so much. It's the exact opposite. We are worth so much because He died for us. It's the very backwards of the way the gospel has been given. So He didn't give us all of these riches because He's trying to get something out of us, He needs nothing. God gives us the riches of His grace because of the overflow of the goodness of His heart, because of His Son, because of His covenant. Even after we've gotten saved, there's really nothing we can do to gain God's favor. We can't try to be extra good so that we can come worthily to the Lord's table. We come worthily when we confess our sins, when we cling to Jesus. It's only in His worthiness that we can come. And so what we should be doing as as children of God is being like Mephibosheth, being grateful ...to God and, and, and just expressing our unutterable uh, thankfulness to Him. The last feature that I see of David's gift is that it was self-sacrificing. David had to sacrifice any thought of revenge... ...to be willing to give chesed to anyone from the house of Saul. He had to sacrifice natural fleshly impulses... ...and of course the property. It was an asset he could have claimed for himself... But He sacrifices that as well. And it did cost God to give His chesed to us. It cost God the Father the giving up of His Son. It cost God the Son the humbling of the incarnation, the sacrifice of an obedient life, the sacrifice on the cross. It costs the Holy Spirit to bring God's chesed into our life because He has to put up with uh, all of the, the sins that we engage in and our ungratefulness and our, our, our grumbling. In fact, it says in James 4, verse 5, that the Spirit yearns within us jealously. He hates it when we're clinging to sin as if it's a prized treasure. You know, we're holding on to our mud pies and we're disdaining the riches that Jesus, at great cost, has purchased for us. It's insulting insulting to his grace. And so it costs God every day to extend the richness of his hesed. And because of this, I would urge you to take your cue from Mephibosheth and lay down your life before God in unutterable gratefulness. Now let's take a, a look at the condition of Mephibosheth before we look at the amazing interchange between them. If God's justice had been meted out way back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul at that point would have been removed from the throne and none of his family would have received any of this inheritance. Actually, they didn't have most of this stuff. This was something that Saul had grasped over time. And that would have been justice. Mephibosheth did not deserve this property. It wasn't Saul's to pass on. God had disinherited him. And so Mephibosheth was undeserving of what he got here. Those properties uh, really were not his. And in the same way, we really don't want justice from God. That's what complaining is asking for. Lord, I've been given a bad rap. I want justice. We want Hazad. We want mercies. We want his gentleness, his kindness, uh, his faithfulness to be poured out. A Second, Mephibosheth was an enemy, just as we've already seen we were to God. Verse 4 says that he resided in the house of one of the supporters of Saul, Machir of Lodabar. By the way, David was not just kind to Mephibosheth. He was unbelievably kind to Machir and very generous with Machir. And Machir, in turn, becomes incredibly loyal to David. You see that in chapter 17. So you see these these, uh, living waters coming out of David in bringing hesed to Machir and to, to other people, but then they come around and they bless David again in chapter 17. Now back to Mephibosheth. He was a man uh, who had fled from David and was in hiding. And let me read to you chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan... Saul's son had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So he fled from David. He was in hiding. He was not residing on his grandfather's land, and he probably did not consider it safe to do so. It took a person who knew him personally to ferret him out. Uh, now back in our, our chapter here, verse 4 says, So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in lo Lodabar. Lodabar means literally the place of no bread. And what a remarkable picture of our spiritual situation. If it had not been for Jesus, the bread of life coming to us, we would have been in the desolate haunts of Lodabar. But um, he comes from a place of no bread to a table overflowing with good food. And of course, we've already read that uh, Mephibosheth was lame from a fall. Now, it seems hardly possible. All these things could be in the text by accident. That's why some people say, this has got to be a type, you know, because there's so many details that seem to, uh, to fall to, to, together. But either way, God providentially fills out the picture of our sad estate. Lame, unable to walk to God because of our fall in Adam. Adam was the king. We are princes, the sons of that king. And because of our fall in Adam, uh, we are spiritually uh, unable to come and again I don't know how far to push the text on some of these details but at least you can see it as a remarkable illustration doesn't have to be a type to be an illustration and then finally Mephibosheth was a man who was unaware of David's covenant love to him totally unaware of it he had to be told about it some of you have had the privilege of growing up in a covenant home. You've never known a time when you didn't love God and God didn't love you, and, and you've been told about God's chesed, faithfulness to you. But you know, there are millions of people out there who have never heard the gospel story, and we are ungrateful wretches if we do not share with fellow beggars the wonderful offer of salvation that God has given, just like Zeba. Uh, we're like the lepers in 2 Samuel 7, you know, they they, uh, finally in desperation went out to the tents of the enemy thinking, well, if they kill us, they kill us, but we're going to die of starvation anyway. And they find all of these tents deserted and so they're gorging themselves with the food and they're plundering and hiding all of the loot. And all of a sudden it dawns on them, there's a city of people starving who don't know the incredible riches that they could have. And so they went and they told them, and we need to evangelize. We've got to tell the story uh, of the good news uh, to others. Or we're not really tasting of God's chesed the way God wants us to taste. He wants us to drink so deeply that out of our innermost being flow rivers of living water. means we're bringing healing to others. Now let's read through verses 5 to the end of the chapter to get a feel for this incredible interchange. ...that happens as they meet face to face. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir... ...the son of Amiel from Lodabar. This was a summons. Okay? He didn't have the option of saying, eh, thanks, but no thanks. I don't think I'm going to go meet with David." No, you have no choice but to come when the king summons. It was an irresistible call... And it was a summons to one alone. In chapter 21, we find out that there are actually other sons, other descendants of Saul who have survived. But this offer was not made to one of them. It was only made to Mephibosheth. And so just like God's Hesed is sovereign, it is distinguishing, it is only given to the elect... This chesed of David was only given to Mephibosheth, and he felt no compulsion whatsoever to give it to any other of the other sons of Saul. In fact, they end up being killed later. Verse 6 Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Now, too many times we are arrogant and impudent in our approach to the sovereign king of the universe, and I think we need to take some cues from Mephibosheth in our protocol. Approach God as a servant and let God lift up your head. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? He said, sit at the lowest place on the table and let the head of the table, if he so chooses, lift up your head and bring you to the front. And this is the consistent approach of the apostles they always call themselves the bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did they realize that they were sons of God? Absolutely. Yes, they did. They, they, they knew that. But um, they still approached God as slaves. And it shows a recognition that we are nothing in ourselves. And God can lift us up and give us more. And that's exactly what David does in verse 6. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. Now, servants were not ordinarily addressed, and actually the literal word is slave. They were not ordinarily addressed in this uh, kind of a personal way. Mephibosheth, he calls him by name, and Mephibosheth approaches David and says, Look, I'm willing to be your slave, uh, your bond slave. And I think this is a wonderful approach to God, to glory in the fact that we are children, but to never lose sight of the fact that we are God's bond slave's who are, we owe Him uh, our obedience. We we have been created, uh, designed to do His bidding. And yes, we have the intimacy of children, but we should always know our place before the King of the universe. And yes, He sends His Holy Spirit into our hearts to give us the courage to cry out, Abba, Father, and what a wonderful heart's cry uh, that is. But it is always consistent with the attitude of a servant. Now, if you lived back in those days, you'd realize there's really not a contradiction whatsoever here because children address their parents with the same respect that a slave would. Galatians 4 speaks about that. There's really no difference uh, between uh, the two, the same kind of respect. And I want to read you from Malachi 1 verse 6 that ties together. As I read this, I want you to notice we're called sons, we're called servants. There's no contradiction and both owe their honor to God. It's indicating we should never get too chummy with God. Here's Malachi 1.6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. Do you see how both sonship and servanthood owes reverence, owes reverence? of that same honor. And so whether we are a son or a servant, we owe God reverence and godly fear. And verse 7 seems to imply that David sensed a fear in Mephibosheth's voice, perhaps undue fear, and he seeks to alleviate that fear. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely... And I love that word, surely... I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake... And will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. So Mephibosheth has fear, and it's it's certainly an appropriate emotion to have when we're coming before a, a king, and David alleviates that fear. He gives Mephibosheth assurances and promises that I'm sure he was absolutely stunned by. And... When we do as Malachi 1, six commands and we show God the reverence that any son, any servant would show, God ushers us into our privileges. Well, after doing exactly that, telling Mephibosheth about his incredible privileges, verse 8 goes on, then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? I doubt that Mephibosheth ever lost his sense of awe and wonder and amazement at the incredibly good providence of God in his life. Uh, His whole life he seems to be blown away by it. Who am I that you would be so gracious to me? And I would urge you to never lose the sense of wonder that you could be saved and so richly blessed in time and for eternity. I think to do anything other than what Mephibosheth does here should be the surprising thing. That should be what's surprising. There is uh, many a time I have looked to my heavenly uh, loving Father and said in astonishment, Lord, I'm just blown away by all that you have done for me and all that you have forgiven. I feel like Mephibosheth. I feel like such a dead dog. I'm worse than a dead dog. I, I deserve to be cast into hell, and yet you've not only called me your son, you've sent your Holy Spirit in my heart to give me the courage to cry out, Abba, Father, and I do. That is my heart's cry, Lord. But my heart goes out to him, but it's out of a sense of unworthiness that it goes out to him in intimacy and says, Abba, Father. It's out of a sense of unworthiness. And brothers and sisters, when you view your complaints from the perspective of Mephibosheth, they will pale into insignificance. You'll gladly take your hardships, and you'll say, oh, so long as I have God's favor, I don't care. I don't care what God sovereignly brings into my life. In fact, uh, I want you to turn with me to um, chapter 16, and we're just going to quickly anticipate uh, something that happened to Mephibosheth there, and I think this beautifully shows the heart of this young man. Okay. Second 2 Samuel 16, beginning at uh, verse 1. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, and by the way, he's fleeing from Absalom, he's lost everything, looks like he's lost his kingdom. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Now here comes a bold lie. It's just an incredible lie. And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here, All that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, uh, my lord, O king. Now turn over to chapter 19. I want you to see what happens when David comes back and Mephibosheth is able to meet him. Uh, Chapter 19, let's begin reading at verse uh, 24. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it's clear he's been mourning for David this whole time, Uh, very clear that Ziba was lying. Verse 25, so it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my lord, O king. My servant deceived me, for your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame, and he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes, for all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet you set your servant among those who eat at your table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king?" So the king said to him, why do you speak anymore of your matters? I have said, you and Ziba divide the land. Now, that's actually a change from what Ziba had, uh, David had said to Ziba. He'd given everything to Ziba, right? Uh, but he now has irrefutable proof that Ziba has lied. But he feels kind of stuck, you know. He's made that so. What he does is actually pretty good. He divides the land Uh, Mephibosheth, after what Ziba has done for him, is probably not going to want to have anything to do uh, with him or his family. So that's probably just fine with Ziba and the enormous estate that he has. Even if you divide it in two, it's going to be far more wealth than Mephibosheth is going to be able to have in his entire life. I don't think David's being entirely fair here. But at the same time, it's fine. But here comes the verse that shows me Mephibosheth's true heart. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all inasmuch as my Lord the King has come back in peace to his own house. He wasn't in it for the money. He wasn't in it for what he could get uh, out of David and for all of the blessings. He had been mourning David's loss this whole time. Now he's rejoiced that David is back. He wants David's favor. He wants David's friendship. That's all he cares about. And I think this is a wonderful attitude for us to have towards God. Perhaps somebody has slandered your name and taken away everything that you have and your zeba has really hurt your heart. Uh, perhaps um, your pride has been hurt uh, or in some other way, you've got this pet peeve that you're nursing. Just throw it away and say to the Lord, Lord, if you want that zeba to take everything, he's welcome to it. I am just so glad that I have you. I am so glad that I am your son or your daughter and that I have your favor. Please help me to value you more than the gifts that you have given to me. I think if that's our heart, it's going to bless. It's going to bless the Lord. And so no matter what the zebas of this world might do to you, they can't take God away. They can't take heaven away. And you still have far more than you deserve. So long as you've got God's favor, say, praise the Lord. Now back to chapter 9. Let me read verses um, 9 through 11 then comment on the rest of this interchange. Actually, let me read all the way through verse 13. And the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, excuse me, and the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belong to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your son, the master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Zeba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. What an incredibly lavish gift. Uh, what an incredible new lease of life that he had. And I see eight beautiful facets of this diamond of David's chesed and since verse 3 says it's the hesed of God, it's no wonder that these eight facets really are facets of our own uh, salvation as well. It's not eisegesis to apply David's chesed to God's chesed because it is the chesed of God. Now, the first facet is security. Mephibosheth would not have to worry anymore that David would come after him and kill him or come after his son and kill him. Uh, he had found security in David's chesed. And I think this is a fabulous, fabulous aspect of God's salvation for us. We are secure from the wrath of God. We are secure from the clutches of Satan. And we have the promise of eternal security. Marvelous grace of our loving uh, Lord. Now, second, he experienced covenant kindness because of another. And we've already commented on that. But I don't think we should ever tire of saying that our salvation is because of the merits of Jesus, because of His active obedience and His passive obedience on the cross. And it's because of God is a God who cannot lie, and He has promised it in His covenant from before the foundation of the world. Now, point three, many commentators have pointed out another fascinating aspect of Mephibosheth's eating at David's table, and that is that it implies adoption. Now, adoption, it's pretty hard to find much material on that in the Old Testament... Adoption was not common in the Old Testament, but when King Saul brought David into his house and let David eat at his table, commentators say it was a sign that he had been adopted into Saul's family. When David brings Mephibosheth to eat at his table, he's adopting him as a son. It really is a remarkable, uh, remarkable action that he takes here. Now, of course, God's adoption of us does not have the danger of being broken off like a Saul's was with David or <coughs> like David almost did in chapter 17. His adoption of us as sons and daughters is a forever adoption. Adoption certainly reflects the, um, the, uh, the, the Kesed character of God's heart. And I, I, I think those of you who have thought about adoption... It's rooted in the Scripture as one of the highest, uh, one of the highest uh, uh, showcases of the chesed of God. Uh, we've already talked about the enormous inheritance, that's point four. Having given us the Son, God has freely given us all things with Him. And it truly is an inheritance worth rejoicing over. But the thing that Mephibosheth valued the most is point five. It's communion, communion that he had with David every single day as he fellowshiped around food. And uh, we've already seen in a later chapter that this communion was the only thing that Mephibosheth really cared about. He told David, give Ziba everything. I'm just so grateful that you're alive. I'm so grateful that I have found favor in your sight. Now, this should be a part of the chesed of God that we value most. This whole next year, the session is working in various aspects of our ministry to try to promote full-orb prayer in this church. Now, we tend to think of prayer as intercession. But one of the one of the funnest parts of prayer is communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit entering into this fellowship with Him. It's not an empty sign. It is something that God really wants us to experience. And if you have... I never, you're mystified what it means when people talk about friendship with God, of having commune, communion with God, I would encourage you to get to the library and pull down volume 2 of John Owen's Collected Writings, and there is a, an essay in there called Communion with God. And the long title is Communion with God, the, Fa, uh, the Triune God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each one distinctively as a person. But it is incredible heritage that we have in the Reformed faith. So one of the things I would encourage you to do in your prayer times is don't spend your entire prayer time asking God for things. Bless God's heart. Show the reach of your heart to his heart and say, Lord, I want to bring pleasure to you. I I value you and being in your presence and, and, and communing with you more than food more than any blessings that you strew into my life. If you could have this be the heart yearning of your prayer life in this coming year, I think you will find yourself blessed. It will transform your thanksgiving. It will transform your adoration. It will transform your petitions. But really, our prayer life should flow from communion and and not just have communion as an add-on. And I really think failing to value point five That communion, like Mephibosheth did, is to despise uh, probably the central aspect of Chesed. Okay, the sixth facet of this Chesed was providing all of the family and servants of Ziba to be Mephibosheth's servants. It would have been very difficult for Mephibosheth, at least initially, to be able to manage these properties by himself. I mean, he could over time hire people and train them and whatnot. But God gives, how many is it? It's 35 full-time servants to Mephibosheth. He gives him resources, okay, the resources to be able to handle this huge new calling that God had given to him. And the Lord is able to provide all of the resources that you need to fulfill your specific calling in life. He may not give you uh, more resources than you need for that calling, although God so frequently does. Uh, And uh, I love the prayer of Jabez, Lord, expand our borders. But what's the point of expanding our borders so that my resources can be even more effective in serving your kingdom? And so it's a wonderful part of God's hesed. The seventh thing that was so encouraging was that David repeated the promise four times that Mephibosheth would eat at his table, four times. And we're not told Why? Uh, In my mind's eye, I'm I'm picturing the fact that Mephibosheth is so stunned, has such a look of disbelief on his faith, that David has to encourage him, no, I really mean it, and four times he is repeating uh, this promise to him. But how many times has God given his reminders of his chesed richness to us? It's literally hundreds of times. And one of the things I would encourage you to do is anchor your faith in the promises. If you have a hard time getting into communion with God, start meditating on the promises that God has given and allow that to stir up your heart in praise and adoration. The last facet uh, of this jewel that I want to mention was that David's chesed was extended to Mephibosheth's son, Micah, in verse 12. And I love this facet of God's uh, covenant chesed as well, that He has promised over and over again to be a God to us and to our children after us. He has promised His faithfulness, and that's the word chesed, to a thousand generations of those who love Him. May it be so of each of you. Now, in conclusion, let me just give you two final admonitions to wrap things up. First, Tell God every day how much you appreciate His Chesed. Paul's prayer to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians one eighteen was this: that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Why did he have to pray that this church would have the eyes of their understanding open so that they would know the riches? that God has stored for them. It's because our natural predisposition is to be forgetful, to be ungrateful, to be grumbling, to be blind to God's chesed. And so he prays this prayer uh, so that they will not be forgetful. And if there's one thing you take away from this sermon is that I would encourage you to ask God every day, Lord, never let me lose the sense of wonder and awe at my salvation. Every day, make me to be like Mephibosheth, standing in awe of what you have done. My second admonition is to pray daily that those same exact waters that you have received from Jesus would flow out of your innermost being in providing kindness, in providing chesed to the lives of others who do not deserve it, and especially to those who do not deserve it. To the degree that you do this, you're going to become just as much a picture of salvation as Mephibosheth was. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful, (coughs) wonderful picture uh, that you have given of your salvation. And Father, we glory in you. Uh, We stand in awe that you would have taken us worse than dead dogs and elevated us into the status of sons and daughters and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have been so generous to us. Forgive us for those times where we have acted as if you owe us. Forgive us for those times where we have had hearts that are dull and and, and slow to praise. Father, give us worshiping hearts. Uh, give us hearts that just love to come on the Sabbath day to lift up your name, and to be lost in wonder at all that you have done for us, and wanting in return to make our lives a service of gratitude. And we are grateful to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all that you do. Blessed be your name forever and ever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.